Amen. Amen? I just told Tanner that uh, we could be uh, anywhere on the planet on this given day, especially with the planet being in turmoil and in pandemic uh, that we're in. Uh, but we're not. We're sitting in the church parking lot, and arguably you have the most amazing view of any drive-in church, uh, maybe certainly in Knox County, maybe around the world. Is it not a beautiful day to be here at church? And I just want you to know this morning that, uh, that the world is in an unusual place. And you as families, uh, you as individuals, you're in an unusual place and you can't hide from that. In, in fact, watch this. If, if your world is a little unusual right now, blow your horn. It's all inclusive. Uh, you're not alone. Uh, we live in an unusual world. But I, I want you to know that God shows up big in the unusual. And, and today, we're going to look at a, a chapter in J the Gospel according to John where unusual explodes. It's every part of this chapter is an unusual thing. And the <clears throat> grand conclusion to the narrative is that God just shows up big in the unusual because he's an unusual God. He, he's not a run-of-the-mill, normal, created God. He is the true and living God, and he is an unusual God, and, and, and he does big things in the unusual. So today we're going to get a story to help you, to help me and us as a church learn how to live in the unusual. And not just to survive in the unusual, but to thrive in the unusual. Now, I want you to hear me. God wants you to thrive in the unusual, not just get by and survive, because He operates in the unusual realm. He, he is an unusual God that we will never understand. So when He allows the world to turn upside down and get confused and, and, uh, and for people to find themselves worrying and wondering in darkness, man, He shows up big. Because he is an unusual God who wants you to live well in the unusual. Now, this is coming from John. If you got your Bibles today or your device, open it up to John chapter 11. And this is another chapter written by arguably Jesus' best friend. And he writes many things in this gospel that the other three gospels do not record. And so it's a special story. And this story today, which is... The most unusual story, the most unusual miracle in the Gospels, it's, he's the only one that writes about it. You see, John and Jesus were extremely close, and Jesus would allow John ultimately to write three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Jesus would allow John to live long enough to receive all of the future events in the book of the Revelation. And so it's an important book, the Gospel according to John, and it is an important story for you and I today. Now, we've been looking in the last 10 chapters of John, we have seen some amazing miracles of Jesus. We've seen six great miracles passed in his adult life in the last about three years of Jesus' life. We've seen six amazing miracles. Today we'll see the seventh. And so to recap that a little bit, because it lays the groundwork of who Jesus is. And, and I want you to know today, Jesus needs to be big in your world because he is a big God. In John chapter 2, Jesus turned the water into wine, 
And we saw this is Jesus showing up over discouragement. In John chapter 4, we saw that Jesus healed the official son, the official's son, and he did it at a distance. He was he has power over the distance. In John chapter 5, he heals the crippled man. It, he proves that Jesus has power over disability. In John chapter 6 is when Jesus fed thousands on the hillside with leftovers with a sacked lunch from a little boy. It demonstrated Jesus has power over our physical needs and desires. John chapter 6, Jesus walks on water in the middle of a storm when his disciples were worried to death and they were fearing for their life. And Jesus proved he has power over despair in our life. And then in John chapter 9, just a couple of weeks ago, which unfolded two chapters of storyline, Jesus heals a man born blind. And it demonstrated Jesus' power over the darkness of this world. I'm telling you, Jesus has it all under control when we let him. And today we're going to find out that the number one concern, the number one fear, the number one worry, the number one thing that we avoid most of all, dying, Jesus demonstrates his power over death. And that's good news. Because if you've ever worried and thought about dying, blow your horn. If you've ever worried or thought about somebody that you love dying, blow your horn. Jesus knows about that fear, that concern, and that worry. Jesus watches as we grow older. Jesus watches as our parents grow older. And he's got the power over death itself. We don't have to worry about that anymore. Amen? Amen. Now, today is the seventh miracle of Jesus in his three years of ministry between ages of 30 and 33 when he would die on a cross. And, and, and this seventh miracle written, recorded in John is the most unusual. And I never saw it before, but it is chock full of stuff that is just simply unusual and uncommon. And yet the culmination of the story, Jesus just shines big in the unusual. And so the, the, so the message for us all today is that Jesus wants to be big in this unusual world. So the title is simply this, Living in the Unusual. In John chapter 11, it begins like this. It says, Now a certain man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village where Mary and her sister Martha lived. Now this was the Mary who anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and wiped his feet dry with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Okay, so this is a close family of Jesus. Jesus loved, he was close to, he stayed with often, he worked alongside often Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And now he, he gets a message that Lazarus is sick. Now we don't know what's wrong with him, we don't know if he's been battling this for a while, but apparently he's pretty bad sick because as the story unfolds, we'll find out that he's actually on death's bed. So that's where we pick up today. The first point in today, if you're a note taker, and I hope you are, is I want you to write this down, an unusual claim. We find an unusual claim right out of the beginning of this chapter. This chapter is unusual. And the unusual claim is found in verse 3. It says, so the sisters, Mary and Martha, they sent a message to Jesus and they said, Lord, look, the one you love is sick. 
Now you say, well, what's so unusual? Why is this an unusual claim? Why is this possibly even an unusual doctrine or a thing that we build our faith system on? What is so weird about this? Nothing except it's unusual. In other words, most often we fail to claim the reality that we are the people that Jesus loves. We, we refuse to own that truth. I want you to know something. Jesus loves you. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Alright? The New Testament is a demonstration. It is a, it is a fulfillment of the reality that God loves you. I want you to look at the person sitting next to you and say, Jesus loves you. Now look at that person and say, and I know sometimes it ain't easy. Because it's not easy for me. Just go ahead and own that. You know it's true. Don't act like y'all all lovey-dovey all the time. Okay? Not true. But Jesus is lovey-dovey with you every single day. On your worst day, He loves you as much as He does on your best day. Because His love is not based on you being lovable. His love is based on the fact that He is love. And that's good news because I got days that I'm hard to love. Kendra, do not blow your horn. Okay? You've got days where you're hard to love, but not for Jesus. So Mary and Martha send a message and they say, listen, Lord, look, the one you love is sick. It's unusual that they would claim that fact. Now here's what's odd about it too. They're singling out a guy named Lazarus, their brother. A, a, a guy who Jesus had, had, had relationship with, that had been a friend of, that had walked through life with. He's, he's, he's a friend of Jesus. And they're singling him out and saying, listen, Lazarus, the one you love is sick. It's unusual because Jesus loves everybody because God is love. You want to know how much Jesus loves everybody? John 3.16 is the, is the pinnacle of it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, Jesus, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave His life as a demonstration that He loves us. And here we find two sisters who really lock into this powerful truth that you and I sometimes forget to claim that Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so it's an unusual claim. A claim that you and I need to make every day. You know, sometimes when we say things like, uh, when we pray, and maybe we pray, Father, this is, this is the one you love. That's a hard thing to say. This is the one, John said, I was, I'm the beloved disciple. John got it, that God loves him. And some people will say, well, that's a name it and claim it. That's a, that's a prosperity idea that what, you, what your words say, that makes it real. That you can call something out of nothing that doesn't exist and make it exist with your word. That's not what we're talking about. When we say, God, you love me, we are claiming what he has already declared. And I think we need to practice that more. Our intimacy with God through Jesus' his son should include I'm the one you love. When I'm praying to you, Lord, I know you love me because you told me you love me. Number two, it's not just an unusual claim. 
we now find a really unusual response. Because if we're going to God in prayer with a need, often it's a 911 need. Amen? We want it now. We don't want it tomorrow, next week, next year. We kind of want it now. That's why we're asking now. In fact, probably the reason we're asking now is because we've exhausted all of our human resources and now we need God. Just this week, I have a confession as a pastor. Things are going great in the construction site and moving forward. And, and because of the rain, it, it got sideways. It was really hard to schedule trucking, to get dirt out, to get gravel in. Really difficult. And I got a little frustrated and in the flesh and, and, and I couldn't get, I just couldn't get people to do what they said they were going to do and it frustrated me and they had good reasons. I'm not saying they were wrong in doing that. It just wasn't working out for me, you know. And so I was having a little personal pity party and, and I was talking with, uh, with Scott Arnold and Scott said, yeah, he said, sometimes, man, I just think we just need to drop back and pray. And I, was, I, I, I wanted to punch him in the mouth. Okay, because he caught, he caught me, and I, but I didn't. Rather than punch him, I confessed, and I said, you know what, you're right. He said, about what? I said, I, I, I've been jumping in the middle of this trying to make stuff happen. And I said, so I'm just going to pray. And I walked away, and as soon as I walked away, I said, Lord, I, he's right. I'm wrong. I jumped in the middle of this. I'm trying to create rock myself. Okay, I'm trying to invent trucks in my mind and call it into existence. And it doesn't work. And I said, so if you want us to have rock, you can get us some rock. And if you don't want us to have rock today, it's cool because this is your church and your project. 30 minutes later, I called Scott. I said, guess what? He said, what? I said, what you said to me moved me. I prayed because I had exhausted all my resources. Stupidity 101. Okay. And then I turned it over to God. And within 30 minutes, we had trucks rolling in here and rolling out of here. Amen. Now, God wants us to, to have a relationship with him before we exhaust all of our personal energy and effort. So here's what happens. Unusual response, verse 4, when Jesus heard this request, this prayer need, he answered, the sickness will not lead to death. Now put that down in your mind. Jesus answered. He said, listen, he said, this thing isn't going to lead to death. Okay. Then he goes on and he says, but to God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He, he just come out, he loves them. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, now here's the unusual response. He says he remained in the place where he was for two more days. That is not the Jesus we like praying to. We like praying to a Jesus that's a genie in a bottle Jesus that we rub him a little bit and we tell him what he wants and boom, here he comes. Bam! It's answer to prayer. And yet that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, first, I'm going to give you a word. He says, this will not lead to death. Meanwhile, I'll be there in a few days because I've got to take care of some other business. That's not what we want to hear. But notice there's something in the middle of that that is powerfully important. Jesus says, it's not leading to death, but to God's glory so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. I want you to know today that sometimes when we pray, God's response is unusual because although He loves you, and He does, and although He will answer prayer, He always answer prayer, answers prayer. Yes, no, or not now. But He always answers our prayers with, with, uh, uh, in one way or another. 
But I want you to know in his unusual response, he is concerned about your good. Tell your neighbor he, he's, he's concerned about your good. Go ahead and tell him. But there's something that trumps your good, and that is his glory. And often his unusual response, his delays, what seems to be maybe even an unanswered prayer, is God's way of laying the groundwork so that he can receive the glory. Now here's the beautiful part. When we learn to wait, when we learn to listen to God's unusual response with faithful ears, all of a sudden we realize he's, he's trying to achieve maximum glory and he trusts us in the delay. He's allowing you and me in this unusual response to be a part of his glory. That's pretty cool stuff. When the greatest thing in existence is God and his glory, and in this moment of need for you and for me, he says, I'm about my glory, but I'm going to sew you into it. I'm going to patch you into this storyline. I'm going to get the glory, but you're going to get to be a part of my glory. Now, that's pretty cool. Don't you agree? Amen. Now, it doesn't sound so fun, though. When Mary and Martha says, hey, Lazarus is sick and, and you loved him. And Jesus says, okay, cool. Be there in a couple days. It doesn't sound good when we read it that way. It doesn't feel good when we experience it that way. But it's good in the end. And, and as we read this story, we will see that it's all good. Now, keep in mind, Jesus has already told them in his unusual response, this will not lead to death. And even that is unusual as we continue to read the story. Number three, I want us to notice an unusual expression now. An unusual expression. Jesus, still talking, he's talking now to his disciples. In verse 11, Jesus says, After he said this, he added, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. I just, I've read through that a hundred times, I guess. I never noticed this amazing, unusual expression. Hey, Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. It sounds like something my grandchildren do. My grandchildren, who are almost two, almost five, they are not content for you to sleep in their presence. First thing they'll do, they'll come and start grabbing your eyelids, okay, trying to wake you up. They're not happy. And that's what this sounds like. It's just unusual for Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things. It says, hey, fellas, disciples, our friend Lazarus is asleep. <laughs> I'm going to go wake him up. Now he goes on. It doesn't stop there. He goes in verse 12. He says, then his disciples replied, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, then he will recover. No big deal. Now, verse 13, Jesus had been talking about Lazarus's death, but they thought, he had been talking about real sleep. Now listen to me. In, in biblical terminology, often, even in the Old, Old Testament, sleepy, a death is often referred to as sleeping. Now it's not soul sleep. It's not that our soul goes to sleep and one day it's awakened. It means often we, death is referred to as sleeping. So Jesus now is going to clear this up. In verse 14 he says, So Jesus told them now plainly, Okay, you're missing the point. He says, Lazarus has died. Lazarus is dead, 
fellas. Do you get what I'm saying now? He says, Lazarus has died. Now, here's another unusual expression. Listen now what he says. He says, and I am glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. You've got to agree with me. These are unusual expressions. Jesus saying, Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. After he d defines what he means by being asleep, he says, and I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there. He's saying, I'm glad that he died for your sake. Now that is unusual. Have you ever thought about that? About Jesus saying, I am glad that they died. I'm glad that I wasn't there to help them. Hey, come back and see us. Everybody blow your horn to our people just came to check us out. Hope he filled out a visitor's card. Now, he says, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there because now you can believe. So, Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to wake him up. For your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there. Now, Jesus can say this. Why? How can Jesus say such profound things? You ready? Because Jesus always knows what Jesus is going to do. He always knows the future. There's no surprises for Jesus. In fact, we learned in John chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Jesus always knows what he's going to do. Isn't it good news to know that Jesus knows the future and he's not surprised and he knows how he's going to use every situation we have for his personal glory? So Jesus is saying, Lazarus is dead, but I'm going to go bring him back to life. And he said, why am I glad? I'm glad because if I didn't wait, they, people would just say he really wasn't dead. You know, they said that about Jesus who had been crucified. Well, he really wasn't dead. And in the middle of the cool night while in a tomb, he, he, he just kind of woke up. He recovered. Garbage. Jesus knows how naysayers operate. Jesus knows how the enemy is a liar. Jesus wanted to be sure they understood. Our friend Lazarus, he is dead, and I'm going to go raise him from the dead. And so I want you to know the power of this verse. The power of this verse is this. The Bible tells us in Revelation... The Bible tells us in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that, that one day Jesus in heaven is going to hear these words from His Father. Hey, the church, their bodies, the bodies of the saints, they're asleep. I want you to go wake them up. One day on God's eternal timeline, those, of, those that we know who have already gone on to heaven to be absent from the body, to be present, with the Lord, one day their bodies are going to be resurrected and reunited with their spirits. Now that's some heavy stuff. That's stuff that, that's hard to wrap our minds around because it's unusual. But I want you to know, Jesus here is demonstrating this truth for us. That when we die, our spirit goes on to be with the Lord. Our body is left here to be buried in a grave, in a tomb, to be... Uh, to be returned to ashes. And one day, he's going to come back and 
reunite the spirit with the body and it'll be a glorified body. He wants, he wants you to know that one day he's going to raise you up. One day he's going to resurrect your body to be reunited with your spirit. Number four, we find an unusual commitment. An unusual commitment. Listen what happens now in verse 16. It says, So Thomas, called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Well, then let us go too, so that we may die with him. Now, what is so unusual about this commitment? Well, one, when is the last time you said, Hey, let's load the bus and go die? Nobody says that. Nobody says, Let's go die with somebody. They may say, let's go defend somebody from death. Let's go try to prevent a death. Nobody ever says, let's go that we may die with him. Now, what was he talking about? He was talking about Jesus returning to that place. They hated Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. And so Didymus, excuse me, Thomas called Didymus says, well, they're going to kill Jesus, so we might as well just go down there and die with him. And it's an unusual commitment. And yet, it's a commitment that you and I should be willing to make. It's a statement, a commitment, that where we just say in our heart and in our mind and in our soul, you know what? I am willing to die for Jesus because Jesus was willing to die for me. Often, often it doesn't play out that way. Seldom. Will Jesus require your life? But in the event that he does, we should be willing to say, Hey, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm going with you so that I may die because you died for me. Now, not only is it unusual because it's a commitment to die, and nobody makes that commitment. Nobody verbally says that. Not only is it unusual because of that, it's unusual because of who it's coming from. Now, you don't hear a lot about Thomas, the twin. That's what Didymus is, a twin. He's a twin. And you read about him later after Jesus has been crucified, after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, after Jesus goes to present himself to those, the women who loved him and the disciples who followed him, he, he's showing himself to the, his followers, his sheep, and, and, and the disciples come to Didymus, excuse me, to Thomas, called Didymus, and they say, hey, Thomas, guess what? Jesus, man, is alive. We've seen him. You remember what he says? Ha, I'll not believe it till I see the scars in his hands and feet. And so what do we call him 2,000 years later? Doubting Thomas. It's an unusual commitment for this guy to go from, well, let's just go on down there so we can die with you too. He goes from that place to a place where he says, I'm not believing until I see it with my own eyes. And his name would stick based on that decision alone. His name would carry 2,000 years as a doubter. Now, I want you to know today that this is a commitment that we need to make, that we, says, I'm will, that we say, I am willing to die for Jesus because he died for me, and I will not move back from that truth. Now, you say, well, I don't do that. Many of us do. What does it look like? It looks like this. We're a small boy, small girl, maybe a teenager, maybe even an adult. And we make a commitment to Jesus that looks like this. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my sinful, broken life in exchange for your glorious, beautiful, perfect life. I want you to save me. 
I'll follow you from this day forward. And in that moment, man, we feel the brokenness healed. We feel the burden relieved. We feel the presence of the Holy Spirit coming into our life to take up residence. We feel now we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We know with certainty that we are a child of the Most High God. And man, we're walking in new shoes. We've got a new heartbeat. We've been liberated from our sinful condition, man. And we're going to follow Jesus no matter what. Now, I know no one in this parking lot has ever done I'm telling a personal testimony. So then what happens is we get back in the world out of that moment. And before we know it, we look much on the outside like we did before we ever had that encounter when we surrendered our life to Jesus. And I want you to know today, this unusual commitment that Thomas made is a commitment that you and I need to make and stand by and live by, listen to me, and die by. Because he has it all under control, our living and our dying. And when we give it to him, he will handle it and do amazing things. Number five, I want you to notice the unusual timing of Jesus' arrival at the situation. It says now in 17, verse 17, When Jesus now arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days already. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, so many of the Jewish people of the region had come to Martha and Mary to console them over the loss of the brother. Now this doesn't play well, okay? This, this, this goes against the grain of who Jesus is supposed to be. This goes against the grain of how Jesus should respond to those that he loves. And he does love them because he loves us all. But this doesn't look right. Because when he shows up, Jesus, excuse me, Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. Jesus is supposed to be a friend of Lazarus. He, you, you don't miss the funeral, man, of a good friend. Jesus is supposed to be God in the flesh. And, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus had understood and bought into that reality. The creator of the world in the flesh doesn't miss an opportunity for a hospital visit and maybe even a miraculous healing of a good friend. This... This is an unusual timing. It, it's, it doesn't play well. It's not what it is supposed to look like. But as we'll see in a few minutes, it's only through death. It's only through death that Jesus will be glorified. And four days just help them all know, Lazarus, he ain't fooling around with death. He did. There is no argument that can be made against the reality that the one Jesus loved is dead. He's buried four days dead. We'll find out later he's stinky dead. He is dead. There is no, there is no softening the reality that Lazarus is dead. But do you remember what Jesus said early in the story when he got the prayer request? He, he said, this thing won't lead to death. And now what does it just say? Four days he's been buried. It sure looks like Jesus kind of missed it. It sure looks like that 
Jesus saying it wouldn't lead to death didn't hit right because he's dead. I want you to know that in the moment when we least expect God's promises to be fulfilled, that's the most opportune time for God to be God. You see, sometimes we want God to be God on our timeline. We want God to be God with our description. But our description and our timeline is affected by the timeline we live in. Our de definition of how God should move is, is modified by our belief system and, and who we are and what we've experienced. God is outside of both. God's ways are not affected by our life, our mistakes, our ways, our partial understanding. God is an eternal God. God is not confined by the rotation of, of the solar system. God is not on our timeline. He's not, he doesn't operate according to our clock. And so Jesus is still doing what he wants to do, and often it's unusual timing. Now listen to me. You, you may be here today, and, and you've got a prayer request. You've been petitioning God about. You may be having your friends pray for you. You may be praying for you every day. It may be, it may be a relationship. It may be uh, the, the, the anxiety of this world we're living in. It may be job loss. It may be sickness. It, it could be a whole host of things that we're praying for. And God just doesn't seem like He is answering. I, I want you to know, God's timing is unusual timing. God's timing is perfect timing. And when we learn to trust Him in His timing, then we learn to experience what it is He wants us to get from His miracle. Number six, we see an unusual faith. An unusual faith. It says in verse 20, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, <laughs> yeah, he a little late to the party, all right? He missed the, he missed the hospital visit. He missed the funeral. And now Jesus is going to show up with the people that he loved. So you, you can imagine uh, what's going on in their mind. It says in verse 20, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. You better believe she did. But Mary was sitting in the house. I ain't going out there. Uh, imagine for just a second what this would look like real time for us. Uh, so it says that Martha heard and she goes on out there. And we're going to find out that when she gets out there, her heart is softened because Jesus has arrived. And she still has an unusual faith. But her sister Mary, she's still up in the house. And you can imagine what that looks like today. Mary's in the house. Martha says, hey, I, I think Jesus is coming. And your point well, Jesus is coming. We love Jesus, and Jesus loves us. Uh, we, we've had the funeral. We've been mourning. Lazarus has been buried for four days. It really doesn't matter that he's showing up today now, does it? All right? You can imagine. I'm, I'm not going to cook another meal. Okay? We, we, potato salad's gone. Fried chicken's gone. Okay? I'm not cooking another funeral meal for Jesus. He should have been here for the funeral meal. All right? Meanwhile, Martha says, I'm going, to, I'm going to talk to him. And I don't know if she's thinking I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to let him know how disappointed 
I am. I, I, I don't know what her motivation is. But Martha comes out to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Verse 21, so when Martha got to Jesus, she said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. If it stopped right there, it stops where most of us land. If it stopped right there, it looks like a prayer that we would pray, a prayer of disappointment in Jesus being the miracle maker, in Jesus being God in the flesh. It stops right there. She doesn't stop right there. And I, I don't know if her intention at first was, I'm going to let Jesus know how upset I am that he didn't show up for the hospital visit to heal him and how upset I am that he didn't show up to, uh, at the funeral. But it changes. And her conversation with Jesus doesn't stop in the negative realm. She goes on, she says, but, what a powerful transitional word. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. That's huge. That is a huge step of faith. Now is she saying, Jesus, even now, as bad as this looks, even now, I think you can bring Lazarus back to, to life. It's no biggie for you. Even now, she may be. Maybe what she's saying is, even now, even now that Lazarus has died and has been buried for four days, even now that my heart is absolutely devastated and crushed in the loss of my brother, even now that I'm broken because and disappointed Jesus because I've seen those other six miracles. I've heard the stories of the others recorded in other Gospels. I've seen and heard the miracles that aren't recorded in the Gospels. I know you can do that stuff. You've demonstrated, but even now, I'm still with you. That's when our walk with God gets good. When we look at God and say, <clears throat> even now, when I don't understand, even now when it just stinking hurts, even now when I'm disappointed in what I've been dealt here, even now when you don't look like I think you should look and you don't act like I think you should look even now, I trust you, and I know that whatever you ask God for, He will do. And maybe she's thinking, I'm not worried about bringing Lazarus back to life. I'm asking maybe that you just heal my heart. Just let me know that you are still the Savior of the world. Now, listen what happens. Jesus hears her even now prayer. And it says, verse 23, Now Jesus replied, Your brother will come back to life again. Can you imagine if you've ever lost a loved one, maybe a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a baby, a child, a friend, and four days after the tent has been taken down and the artificial grass has been removed and the casket has been 
uh, submerged or taken down into the dirt and buried. Four days and imagine somebody said, yeah, they're going to come back to life. You're, you, you can't help but doubt the reality of that. And yet that's what Jesus tells her. And so she, even she, tries to give an explanation of what he means. And Martha said in verse 24, I, I know that he will come back to life again in the resurrection at the last day. I know, but that don't really help me right now. You see, she even believed, as the Old Testament teaches about the resurrection in the end time, that one day everybody gets resurrected, some to, uh, some to eternal life and some to judgment and eternal death. She believed that. <laughs> Jesus is not talking about that. And so she has an unusual faith. Now, in this unusual faith, Jesus responds because she has unusual faith. Church, listen, it is important, critically important, that you and I develop and have an unusual faith. That we place everything we are in Jesus. And sometimes that's hard. But we need to dive in like this. Now Jesus is going to clear her up with an unusual claim. He says in verse 25, Jesus now said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. An I am statement. One of the I am statements of Jesus. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now listen to me. You want to know one key point of why believing in Jesus is so good? Because He is the resurrection and the life. The thing that we pursue everything for, He is. What I mean by that, we feel like sometimes I would enjoy life, I would experience life, I would have life, if I had something else, if I had a better job, I would enjoy life more. If I had a better <clears throat> relationship with my spouse or my children, I would enjoy life more. If, if I could make more money and, and enjoy some of the fringe benefits of this world more, I would enjoy life more. We have this list of things that would we feel like would help us experience life. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Everything you ever desire life to afford you, including deliverance from the enemy of life, death itself, Jesus says, I am that. And so he helps her understand exactly what he's talking about. And he goes on. And he says, the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. Verse 26, and the one who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he pinpoints her with a question. Verse 27, excuse me, she said at the end of verse 26, do you believe this? Now, I want those words to penetrate right into your vehicle and right into your home. Jesus just said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And the one 
who believes in me will live even if he dies. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. That's powerful, powerful stuff. And Jesus says, do you believe this? And her answer is the answer, the only answer that we can give. She says in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Now listen, why did Jesus say that twice in different ways? Why did Jesus say those who believe even though they die will live and those who live will believe and never die? Because believing is not just a mental exercise. That I believe in Jesus so that one day when I die, I will live again. Believing in Jesus is a life experience. I believe in Jesus and because of that, I now truly live. And in the fact that I daily truly live, I will never, ever, ever worry about what God has on the other side of this life because I'm living forever. Believing in Jesus, listen to me, does not just change our future. Believing in Jesus changes our now. It changes the way we live. I want you to bow your head this morning and close your eyes. And I want you to pretend for just a second that you went out to meet Jesus and Jesus has just dropped this powerful truth into your heart. He looks at you and says, I am the resurrection and the life. And somebody who dies and believes in me will never die. And somebody who lives and believes in me will always live. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? There may be people here today who have maybe said a prayer, heard a story, been to church, but they've never come to that place where they felt the Holy Spirit of God speak to them with these powerful words. Do you believe this? Jesus requires a commitment of faith from us. Jesus requires that we respond to Him that we receive what He offers us. And so right now there may be somebody who has never done that. And I would encourage you and I would pray right now that the Holy Spirit would convict your heart and give you strength to respond. And if that's you, just simply say, God, I believe you. I know I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died on a cross to deliver me from my sin condition. So right now, God, I want Jesus to come into my life. I want to receive His grace gift offered through His blood on a cross, paying my sin debt. And I place my belief in Jesus and His finished work. And from this day forward, I want to live for Jesus so I can experience what life now is supposed to be in preparation for my eternal life, which I have on the other side of this life through what Jesus has done and what Jesus has promised me. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Isn't it good to know? Isn't it good to know? Amen. Isn't it good to know that in such unusual times, we have an unusual God who does unusual things to demonstrate His, un, uh, his unusual nature in our life. This week, I want you to look around and realize just how unusual things are and be reminded that we have an unusual God who, who wants to make beautiful things out of this unusual story that we're in, just like He is doing in chapter 11 of John. And we'll finish this story next week. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Enjoy Jesus in your life this week. Tell somebody about Him and invite your friends to drive in church. We love you. Have a great week and you're dismissed.